there. You are listening to You Need to Stop Doing That, a podcast from OPX and MatchPace. I'm your host, Elizabeth Knox. We are all facing a million decisions a day, big ones and little ones. It can be overwhelming, and our quick solution is often to add more to our lives. More technology hacks, more responsibilities, more relationships. In reality, if we want to be more successful and to have a greater impact and to maintain the quality relationships we have, we need to make choices to prune away some things from our lives. Only then can our priorities have the place that they deserve. In this podcast, we explore how to stop doing something in a world where we expect ourselves and others to keep saying yes to the next thing. Today is actually our first episode of season one, and I get to have a conversation with Pete Davis, who is a civic activist and writer in Falls Church, Virginia. I first encountered Pete, um, somehow I stumbled upon his commencement speech at Harvard from earlier in 2018. Um, And he talks about how we all kind of browse Netflix and look at the infinite possibilities, um, and it's really hard for us to make a choice. And he uses that as a springboard to talk about um, the value of commitment and digging in deep somewhere. This conversation is really fun. Um, It spans everything from politics to theology. We talk about faithfulness. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Pete. Hey, Pete, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Glad to be here. It's a snowy day in Falls Church, Virginia. I am in DC. We're just across the river. (laughs) So did you uh, use this as a good reason to alter your plans today? Uh, Well, I fortunately, I work from home. So uh, there was no treacherous commute on the I see metro tracks, so um, I'm just cooped up at home. All right. Well, thanks for, um, I know that even it can, snow can like incite a, a feeling of wanting to hold up. So I appreciate that we're still talking. <laughs> no, I wouldn't miss this for anything. Oh, thanks. Um, so I'd love to have you introduce yourself to everyone. Please tell us about yourself. So I am uh, Pete Davis. I'm a uh, civic activist and writer from the wonderful town of Falls Church, Virginia, of which I am a big booster. Um, which is a tiny city outside of DC. And I am the, as I work on a variety of civic projects, uh, local and national, possibly the one most known by the world is I helped co-found Getaway, which helps build tiny houses and puts them in the woods and rents them out by the night. And I'm also trying to launch right now a democratic policy project called the Democratic Alternative, which is aiming to raise up democratic ideas within the Democratic Party. And on the side, I'm involved in a lot of local civic projects and write about civic ideas online. Wow. That sounds like a lot of fantastic things. And I like how you said on the side, I also (laughs) do all of this stuff. So I first found you, you gave the commencement speech. Was it at Harvard or Harvard Law? last year. Uh, it was at, for the whole university. For the whole yeah, university. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I will put a link to that in the show notes, but I would love, um, so that other people can watch it, but I would love if you would give the listeners a little recap to your commencement speech. Yes. Yeah, so for, I, I took the opportunity of my commencement speech to talk about the virtues of commitment. I called it a counterculture of commitment because I feel like the main value for the Many folks in my generation, especially at the age when you're graduating from uh, college and graduate school, the main cultural value is to keep your options open. You know, gather a bunch of skills that could be deployed in any different way, gather a bunch of credibility and connections, keep your options open, don't commit to anything, don't commit to a person, don't commit to a place, don't commit to an institution, don't commit to a cause. 
And I wanted to make an argument to build a counterculture, which is a counterculture of commitment that you should close doors, that you should forego options for the sake of uh, falling in love with people and places, causes and institutions. And what was the modern day um, example that you used? Well, the modern, yeah, I couched it within the story of the experience of browsing Netflix late at night. Uh which I'm sure many folks have uh, experienced. I sure experienced. I even experienced it after giving a speech on not doing it, (laughs) which is that, uh, you know, you're browsing Netflix late at night. You can't pick. There's so many good options. Uh, You're being recommended all these different things and you browse through the different titles. You browse through the different reviews. You keep flicking through posters. You, you know, you see who's in what you see what's short and then eventually just give up and you found yourself stuck in it browsing mode and you never ever ever pick a movie and you never watch it so when the opposite experience of when you usually just are forced to watch something uh it's usually great (laughs) so so um i was trying to remind people that the joy that you're seeking out is the joy of the long the long commitment not the absolute perfect thing that you think you can find because usually you'll be stuck uh searching for that instead of finding it oh that's awesome yeah, I mean, we think that we're looking for perfect, like that's the old perfect is the enemy of good or whatever. I remember reading somewhere, this guy said that the longer you spend looking for something, the less likely you are to be satisfied with it. You yeah, have such high expectations. He, he actually was one of the people that inspired, uh, that his book inspired the speech a bit. You know, his, uh, it's Barry Schwartz's The Paradox of Choice. Other people have said that too, so you might be thinking of a okay. different person, but that was my version of that lesson where Barry Schwartz uh, was a psychologist or is a psychologist who argued that the more time, you, exactly as you said, the more time you spend searching for something, the less satisfied you are, even on very mundane things. Like if you are given 31 flavors, for example, at Baskin Robbins, you end up being unsatisfied than if there was an ice cream uh, event where there were only two flavors, <laughs> um, even though, and so it's totally counter to this choice maximization idea that's reigned over the last three to four decades. Awesome. I don't think I've ever heard the term choice maximization. Is that, it's basically what we're talking about? Like you can have all of the options in the world? Yeah, like there's, I've heard different versions of it. Like, oh, just generate, you know, there's a lot of things out of business schools which say, you know, your job as a manager is to generate options. There's stuff in economics and political economy where folks say that, you know, if we can't make a moral decision for our citizens, the least we can do is just provide them with a lot of choices. And most people, you know, argue more, the more choice, the better. But what Barry Schwartz was arguing was often there are hidden downsides of having more choice. I think, yeah, it is in mundane things. Like, I know sometimes I'm at the grocery store and I'm like looking, I'm like, okay, do I want jelly or jam? Blackberry or raspberries, (laughs) like, oh my gosh, how many decisions do I have to make just to get something to put on my toast? The wild thing about that is even those examples you gave, that's not even the the most fine grained level of choice because after you choose blackberry jam, there's even 10 more choices of which brand to choose. You know, it made me want to, I used to joke with my co-founder getaway that I wanted to start a store that would just have one item of everything and the store... Um, the store would just be like, okay, here's what we think, if you trust us as a store, is um, the best peanut butter, and it would be labeled as peanut butter in Helvetica font. And um, <laughs> You would have the font picked out, I like it. <laughs> he, 
he always used to say, uh, well, you know, Trader Joe's tries to do that. And I think it's actually part of Trader Joe's appeal. Right. But actually, there was a company that started and I'm glad it exists now called Brandless. Yes. Not to, not to do a plug, but they actually do exactly that. They try to just have the simplest, cognitively easiest uh, experience of shopping by just making choices for you. Nice. My mom used to say, you have two choices for dinner. Take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so, all right. I'm not the only person who feels overwhelmed by, like, the endless decisions. Apparently, people have written books about it. You've spoken about it. So tell me how that translates into the work that you're choosing to do now around civic engagement. Yeah, so I always, you know, people, I've always been the civics guy among my friends. So, you know, I always was involved in all the political campaigns and having thoughts on causes and reading books about that. So people always ask me, what should I do about civics or everything's so bad in America right now? You know, what do we do? Or how do I deal with all the different options I have of, um, you know, what the big problems in the world that are worth solving? How it's affected me is I always tell people in civics, you know, the first thing you need to do in civics is make a commitment to something. So a place or a cause or a community or an institution and out of that commitment it'll show you the path towards affirming effective civic engagement so usually people don't do that it, this sounds really obvious but most people don't do this very obvious thing because mostly people just react to what's in the news and skate on the surface of the news by trying to like you know read all the different tweets or all the different new york times articles about all the different causes and then maybe you know if it's especially bad they send a $25 check or if it's medium bad they make a Facebook post about it but they don't they feel like they're not having an impact they feel more and more hopeless so what I always say is you have to start with a commitment you have to say you know you can't we uh, the unfortunate thing about existence or maybe the fortunate thing is we only have a finite time here on this earth you know you have you know about 50 to 70 years of productive a uh, time where you can really kind of shake the world and that requires and the most effective projects are projects that are 10 to 20 years long and those require making a commitment of winnowing yourself so that you're not a mile wide and an inch deep you're a inch wide and a mile deep and those are start with saying I'm gonna stick with something for a while and so what I've tried to do you know I'm just like everybody else where I'm excited about all different things. I'm bothered by all different issues. But what I've tried to do is find ways to limit my civic activity in certain scopes. So one of mine is I found that I was a person that can't be that single policy person. So, you know, I'm too interested in different policies. So I'm not going to be the person that like spends 50 years fighting for you know, against fracking or something. I'm gonna, so how do I limit myself? So what I did is I limited myself by moving back to my hometown and saying, I'm gonna focus on what are things in my hometown and my home state and trying to integrate myself into a relation with the political systems in my hometown and my home state. And then on a institutional level, I decided that I'm gonna focus on the institution of a single party and trying to make them better and more aligned with their values instead of, you know, fighting medical schools or fighting to change the press or fighting to change how, you know, the military works, I'm going to focus on fighting to change how this party works and lives up to its values. So my two commitments in politics are to my home region of Northern Virginia and my state of Virginia and to my home 
political party of the Democratic Party of and focusing on that and, and seeing what can come of 40 years of engagement in that. I've got like so many questions rolling around my head from that. But <laughs> that's phenomenal. Like I think, yeah, you've chosen civic engagement. Um, and I think you're right. People like they get issue fatigue. And so, you know, you've decided that instead of bombarding yourself with all these issues, you're going to just choose some very specific, like your local community, you're going to dig deep into your local community. And that's a big deal for someone like you're a millennial, right? So don't millennials get a bad rap for like not being able to commit. And so you're saying, no, here I am, I'm going to dig in. Yeah, you know, and you, you ask people, you know, the, the irony of all this is we are not acting on the things that we say we like are inspired by. So millennials actually, I think fellow members of my generation have really good values and really good heroes, but we need to act more like our values and heroes. So, you know, Mr. Rogers is having this huge, I mentioned him in the speech, he's mm-hmm. having this huge uh, resurgence, you know, in the culture. You know, he died in 2003, and yet everyone in 2017 through 18 is talking about him. They're having a documentary, a Tom Hanks movie, there's viral videos all the time, everyone in my generation loves him. And I think what it is, is not one single courageous moment, but it was 50 years of plugging away from 1968 to 2003 at one show in Pittsburgh at his home studio that he slowly developed incrementally over time and was committed to. And, um, and it spanned, you know, two generations or so of children. And right now my, know, I, we watch it with our kids. Even before, oh, won't you oh, be <laughs> Oh, that's so great. Um, and I love it. Yeah, no, and, and you can see that he grew, you know, he started with, you know, okay, here's the basics of the show. Oh, can I expand? And you can see in the Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary, oh, should I expand to an adult show? Should I start a nonprofit that circles around my show? And, um, and like, they started family uh, communications, which eventually produced the continuing stuff with the show and series of books. And it just slowly over time, it happened, you know. I think when we even look at sports figures, I, I, I think about, you know, the end of Kobe Bryant or uh, Derek Jeter's career. You know, everyone was really moved by two guys who stuck with a single team mm-hmm. who um, put it, you know, they were less impressed by like the huge moments and more by, you know, they had these year long retirement ceremonies for them and everyone was really engaged in that because I think they looked at someone who put in 20 years towards something and they were more inspired by the 20 years than I, by any big moment in some world series or NBA championship. And I think, you know, and then there's all these viral posts all the time about this couple celebrated its 50th anniversary and they died next to each other mm-hmm. and everyone's like squad goals, you know, and I go, yeah, that's because, you know, they're understanding that like the joy of the long marriage is more exciting than the romance of the short you know uh the short surprising you know uh uh courtship you know um they and so that's what i'd uh i'd encourage us to see what are the choices that will allow us to cue ourselves up to be more like these people that we're inspired by that's like I'm like, that's a really profound thought. That's so simple, but it's like, oh yeah. So if I admire these people, how can I do what they're doing? Um, <laughs> check that out. Yeah. So then what would you, like, what should people do with kind of the issue fatigue? Like how do they need to stop 
looking at the myriad of issues that surround us so that they can engage better in one? So I would uh, say, I have a few things to say about this. So one is that I would first say that in the same spirit of how I said, look at these folks that are inspiring and act like them. I would say, look at folks that have had a big impact in their lives on making the world a better place in politics on issues Mm -hmm. and look at the way that they did it. And you'll see that the way that they did it is they started with one issue and then slowly used the momentum that they built within one issue and had their impact be bigger than that one issue. Because I think when people are scared, they're scared that if they go into one issue, even in the best case scenario where they make all the difference in that one issue, it won't be worth anything because there's all these other issues. But usually, if you look at people who have a big impact in one issue, it usually flows out into other issues. So let me give a few examples. One of my heroes, Ralph Nader, started with car safety. And he focused in on car safety, even though you can see from his young writings that he was interested in every all these different things. And he brought all of his energy into car safety and he became famous on that and he had an impact on that and made connections with politicians on that. And his car safety work helped change cars forever. He's the reason we have seatbelts and airbags and the bell backing up when, um, when trucks back up. That's called the Nader Bell, the beep, beep, beep from a truck. Um, all because of his car safety work. But um, he took that model after he was impactful on car safety and helped inspire people to bring the Nader model to other people. You know, Mother Teresa, we forget, was someone who just worked at one hospital in one corner of the globe, and yet she inspired people to do work everywhere. Same with other, I'm a Catholic, so I, I have a lot of Catholic examples, but Dorothy Day started with these small Catholic worker centers and said, I'm going to focus on just being present at my one Catholic worker center and inspired people to start Catholic worker centers across the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we forget that Martin Luther King, I'm, I'm filled with examples here. So cut me off <laughs> whatever you want, but Martin Luther King, we forget that Martin Luther King didn't start with a barnstorming national tour about racial justice. He started with focusing on a few States in his region mm-hmm. of Georgia, Alabama, and sometimes Mississippi. He said, you know, his dream started as a dream for a specific set of things in a specific part of the country that he was concretely committed to. Out of that, you know, the, the, the nuclear energy that he brought to, of like bringing all of his spiritual and moral and civic energy to one area in one um, issue exploded out. And now, you know, millions of people doing issues all around the globe, very distant even from Alabama and very distant from racial justice are still inspired by the work that he's done. And I think he wouldn't have had the same effect if you just started with a national tour, you know, uh, focused on, you know, every single issue that was at hand. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is all of the issues are interconnected and you can speak about every other issue through your one issue. And so like people who work on health, health has to do with poverty and has to do with uh, education, and has to do with, you know, campaign finance reform. And if you focus in on health, you will still be able to talk about those other issues, but you'll have it from a concrete lens that ties you to specific relations and goals. And, you know, if you care about one region, that region, the issues, the things that you unearth there will probably be applicable to other regions. And we're, you know, you, we are in the age where, ideas are most likely to synapse across the world 
uh, mm -hmm. much more quicker if you bring a lot of energy and have a lot of success to your one commitment. So you don't even have to give up that much by focusing in on something because it'll bring inspiration to usually every issue is interconnected and it'll also bring inspiration of your model to other places. So, um, but that'll never happen if you just remain shallow, um, mm -hmm. if you just do shallow work. Yeah. So that's my two thoughts on that. So you and I, you know, we did our like pre-podcast conversation. So I want to, you just talked about the interconnectedness of different issues, but you and I also talked about the interconnectedness of, I think you, like your, the way you summed it up was like production collaboration and leisure. Can you talk about how the overlap of production collaboration and leisure has contributed kind of to this fatigue and feeling like you have to be everywhere all at the same time? Yeah, so you know how I said, you know, we need this deep type of civics versus the shallow type of civics. There's also, you know, as, as Cal Newport writes about in that the book that's been going viral, Deep Work, there's also a very similar idea of like just in any work you do, whether it's in civics or it's in, you know, any type of thought-based work, there's a tendency to tend to all the fires and all the incoming communication messages and... Um, and all the tweets and the streams and the, and this, that, or the other versus going deep and adding a lot of value by focusing um, in on something. And so one of the ways that we talk about that at Getaway, John and I, John, my co-founder and I talk about it in terms of production collaboration and leisure. So he says, so, you know, work, there are three ways of being in relation to work according to the schema. Production is deep work, as Cal Newport would talk about it. You know, it's, it's focusing deeply on producing something. It's giving yourself room to breathe of, you know, not rushing at it, but, you know, like slowly pondering something, writing it up, creating something, you know, the, the feeling of being in flow on your work. Collaboration is the need, or sometimes we call it coordination, um, is the need to have discussions with other people to make sure that you're still aligned. You know, it's scheduling and planning and brainstorming and task assigning and restacking, you know, what needs to be done or assessing what has been done before. That does need, you know, that's helpful. That shouldn't be everyone in their own pod alone. That should be discussions. That is like a continuing distraction. And then leisure is the time when you turn off your um, your kind of criticizing, analyzing, deep flow brain and allow yourself to do non-work, you know, uh, celebrate that life exists, you know, be with those you love, um, partake in what, you know, some call leisure activities like, you know, skiing and walking and, walk, you know, walking your dog, things like that. So uh, um the reason I say that those are called leisure activities versus leisure as a spiritual concept is that there's actually a whole lot of writing that we discovered in researching this that says that, you know, leisure used to be this deeper way of being than just, you know, playing tennis. Um, but playing tennis is a way to get to that deeper way of being, but that deeper way of being is this state of, as the theologian Joseph Pieper calls it in his book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, you know, a state of celebrating the world versus criticizing it, a state of um, being rather than doing, a state of um, quiet rather than constant chatter. And, um, and so the problem with work is that we've, we call it the great spillover, you know, production, collaboration, and leisure have all spilled into each other. So you're doing work emails, which is coordination at during your leisure time or during your production time, or 
you're um, you're just focused on getting things done during your collaboration time, um, or you're so overworked during your leisure time that you break and have to watch YouTube videos at work, you know, to just chill out. And what we propose is that we need to combat the great spillover and re-put up these boundaries so that you have time in your day where you're doing production, time in your day where you're doing collaboration, and time in your day when you're doing leisure. I like that. That fits really well with what I'm trying to help organizations do at my company at MatchPace. Um, and so I'm excited. You guys are writing, you wrote a book, right? It's coming out in January? Yeah, we're already up for pre-order on, um, on Amazon. It's called Get Away. Awesome. I think actually it just broke up right when you said that. Can you say the title one more time? Uh, it's called uh, How to Get Away, Finding Balance in Our Overworked, Overcrowded, Always On World. Awesome. And we have a chapter on leisure and the Joseph Pieper's theory of it. We have a chapter on the great spillover, um, but we also have things on how technology plays into that and how nature plays into that. Oh, awesome. Um, Can't wait to read it. Your description of leisure makes me think of, there's no way I can pronounce this guy's last name, but Mikhail, somebody about flow. I'm sure that you've heard. Yeah, like he goes by zhik. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what if you, what, you, what connections you see there? Oh, just that, that it almost sounds like, like he talks about the importance of flow and I, I, what I, where I've read about it is like the importance of flow and work and the importance of like getting into this state. Like there's, you can't define it, but you know it when you feel it. And so when I hear you define leisure, it sounds almost like flow of like peace or something like that, that it's just like, that it's, you're not like trying to play tennis so that you can unwind so that you, it's not like encounter to the production. It's like this state of flow of, I don't know, leisure, I guess. <laughs> yeah. We write about in the book that, you know, people have turned leisure activities into like a form of inversion. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I am not at work now. So I must exercise or I must sleep or I must meditate, you know, because I must be ready by tomorrow to produce again. But uh, one thing Joseph Pieper writes about is that, you know, he, he calls it leisure, the basis of culture, because he wants to invert where we put the center of gravity, because he says leisure should not exist as a respite for the sake of recharging yourself to go to work again, because that would assume that work is the purpose of life. But what Pieper says is the purpose of life is like the celebration of existence. Um, he comes from a Christian perspective. So he says it's like the celebration of God and great gratitude and gratefulness. But, and he, so his idea is that leisure is a wholly different state that does not exist for, as a means. It's just a different state of being. Um, and I like some of his, and you can feel it sometimes. He says it's sometimes, it's not the quiet of nothingness, but the quiet of a conversation between lovers, you know, you know, the quiet of, you know, when you're walking in the park with a friend and you've forgotten what the time is, that's what he would say is, is usual. Or when you let, you know, Martin Buber, uh, the a Jewish theologian talks about I am now. He says, we can have a relationship to the world. That's I, it, where we are, you know, treating everything as an it by which he means, you know, we're measuring it, we're analyzing it, we're comparing it, we're criticizing it, we're seeing how it can be useful to us. Um, and then you can have a relationship of I am now, which is entering into uh, a relation with a fellow subject that says, 
you know, we are, we are in a holy conversation. We are in infinite, you know, we are not going to bring up about that critic. We're going to turn off that critical mind and just be in relation. And he talks about that with regard to, you know, other humans, you know, the danger, you know, Martin Luther King read a lot of Boober and he, he said, you know, we have too much, we treat other people like it's, but we should treat them like thou. But you can actually, Boober got really spiritual and said, you can treat your whole relationship to every object and every tree and, you know, time itself, you know, in, is this something that could be of use to me? Or is this something that could, um, uh, that I'm just going to be in relation with and grateful for and celebrating of. So not to get too fluffy, but no, um, <laughs> bring that we've um, crossed a lot of ground, um, like from topic to topic, but I can see how they're all so relevant to this idea of commitment and going deep. So what, how do people make space for going deep? Like, what do they need to stop? How do they, how can they stop being shallow? Uh, with regard to civics or with regard to everything? Um, uh, I don't know at this point. You know, I would say there's just like micro practical things and then there's macro practical things. So, you know, on the micro practical thing, I'm still learning, you know, I'm not an expert on this. If you talk to my fiance or my, my mom or sister um, or on my co-founder of Getaway, they'll say like, what is this, you know, pizza total hypocrite? Because, you know, why is he talking? Um, being good at this because he's completely distracted all the time. So that's what I just want to put as a disclaimer. But the one thing I have done is I've tried a lot at this. So, and I've read a lot about how people can uh, have done better at this. So I can share um, what for me and what I've read. So um, on a micro level, I think it's really important to affirmatively carve out parts of your day and parts of your week and parts of your month, like in your kind of cycles of different time levels that are where you effectively are cut on the things that are trying to invade and distract you. So just deleted, you know, I, I've tried to do a 9am to noon on most days where, um, where I just work on one, one big thing. I call it one thing deep. Um, uh, periods where I just work on one thing and I try to do it as deep as possible and I do not have distractions but it's hard uh, to maintain that and uh, two is you know I've tried to limit I'm just starting to try to limit some of these streams that are trying to distract me so I I deleted Twitter from my phone I deleted Facebook from my phone you know there are people that they delete it all you know if you want to engage in community projects they're very helpful so I just keep them on my laptop, um, but keep them off my phone. Um, I try to have a real hard barrier where I don't try to, I try to have a barrier with the like deepest relationships in my life where I'm trying to not have work hit, like enter into dinner time, or entering or the, or the night. Um, easier said than done in all things. Those are on the micro level. Mm-hmm. On the micro level in civics, civics is, not like a mechanical thing it's an organic thing by which i mean like you're not going to engineer the perfect way to engage in civics and probably if you do your blueprint will break and your plan will uh will be foiled and it'll probably be foiled by you quitting not by someone else uh not by you hitting a wall by organic means loops ending into a relationship with the cause community or institute you care about participating in. So I would always tell people, you know, there is a, there is um, 
you don't like have a you don't just like sit alone in a room with civics and think of no this is the world i want and i'm going to um and like now let's go build you can think up a vision of a direction you want the world to move in but when you go and start bringing that into reality it's much less like building your utopia and it's more entering into a conversation with these things that are already there and when you do that conversation and relation will suck you in so let me just so if you care about homelessness you know start there is probably an organization in your state that works on that and just start you know joining the newsletter seeing if there's a weekly meeting you know seeing if there's a uh a representative in the state house from the city council that works on that and then start seeing if you can get into the flow of conversation that's happening on that and then that flow of conversation will take on a life of its own because then suddenly you know someone will say oh we need more volunteers for this thing or we need someone to write up this thing or you seem to be interested in this could you do that oh could you now be a leader in it and recruit other people and then you're off to the races and you'll talking about like how do I get them involved you'll just be involved mm. um and that's what i mean by growing a relationship as opposed to you know setting out on like the perfect executed blueprint so mm-hmm. yeah and instead of like being overwhelmed by hom- homelessness and like racism and like all of these other like really overwhelming topics like pick one start to spend some time in it and then flow into it instead of like I'm overwhelmed by homelessness. I'm going to start a nonprofit, a national nonprofit or something like, which, and then because I can't start a national nonprofit, I'm not actually going to do anything. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, because, and the thing is everyone who works deeply on things are, I, I, this is my, you know, this might not be the case with everybody, but I would bet maybe not my life, but you know, I bet a whole lot on that the average person that's engaged on an issue is more hopeful about the issue than the average person who's not engaged on the issue. Mm. Um, because w- you enter a different mindset when you're engaged on an issue because you start seeing all of the, the, gre- the green shoots of potential things. And politics is weird. Politics takes strange turns. And you're always just around the corner from your issue being solved. Mm. You know, like I think about Michelle Alexander you know, take Michelle Alexander, she, she writes this book, The New Jim Crow, where she writes, you know, there's been a bunch of people who wrote about prison reform. There were a bunch of people totally devastated in the 70s, 80s, and 90s fighting on prison reform. And, um, and they saw the whole world going in the other direction. You know, if, if you were a prison reformer in 1994, and you saw both parties trying to grow the carceral state, you'd be totally depressed. But you know, she writes this new take on it, just like a summary book on it. She slapped on to it this new metaphor that says, you know, the prison system is the new Jim Crow. It's the legacy of and Jim Crow segregation. And now it's the third act. Mm. And that, that metaphor takes on this huge life of its own. And um, it totally catches fire. And people everywhere start, start talking about prison reform and racial justice fighters start seeing prison reform as a major part of their racial justice issues. And racial justice takes off because a bunch of college, you know, people are starting to, more people are going to college. They're more in more diverse um, 
diverse campuses where more people are fighting for that and they're talking about it on Tumblr and Twitter and you start having this huge constituency for racial justice and they're focused on prison reform as the spearhead of the racial justice movement among millennials. And now you wake up in 2018 and the Republican president who, who I would argue has a problem with uh, racism might is trying to pressure the Senate majority leader to pass prison reform bill. And it's all, that's, that's, you know, less than a decade after Michelle Alexander gave it a go. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so that's, that's how fast politics can move if you're committed to slow politics. Yeah, <laughs> and so, that is, yeah um, that's really, and, yeah. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. That's how fast politics can move when you're committed to slow politics. And then also what you said about someone who's engaged in an issue is more optimistic than someone who's not because they see the shoots yeah, of opportunity. I have a pithy quote about that from my favorite uh, democratic uh, democracy philosopher, Roberto Unger. He says, we often think that hope is the cause of action, but we are mistaken. Action is the cause of hope. Mm. And the way I translate that to my little more milk toast uh, communitarian way of talking is, you know, you often think that you have to like see a path towards, um, towards like everything being solved for you to act on that path. But actually, if you enter into a relationship with a cause or community or an institution, we'll suddenly become very hopeful about the prospects for that cause or community or institution. So awesome. I just gave a pithy thing and then made it boring again. So, <laughs> no. so take which one you want. <laughs> I like both of them. I like both of them. Um, every once in a while, I'll be like, long answer to a short question. <laughs> like, you know, um, sometimes, but yeah, no, that's really, it's a powerful thought. Um, that action is the cause of hope. Like once you're involved, all of a sudden you see opportunities. I have loved having this conversation with you. You have so much wisdom. Thank you for sharing it. Um, I have one final question that I'm asking everybody on the podcast, and that is what is something that you are trying to stop doing? Trying to stop doing, okay, so this is what's so hard is I've been so, you know, I, I have to, um, make a I, I'm gonna be on like super I'm, I've, I've been honest this whole podcast but I'm gonna be super frank I guess of and vulnerable which is that you know now that you know I, I gave this speech commitment you know I'd really be a hypocrite if mm. I'm uh I'm at I'm at really big risk of being a hypocrite because I get really excited about different things and I have all these different projects that I'm excited about engaging in and I've just meticulously over the past five years tried to like winnow out things that were not like the exact wanted to work on and I've gotten it down to a bunch of different things that are really aligned with what I want and that I feel I could be useful to and it's still too much and I have to still like even at the end of the day after you've really cut out all the chaff and after you've really thought long and hard about what you want to commit to, um, you still might have too much and, um, and, and you're at risk of nothing being good. And so I'm trying to like turn the screwdriver of my life a little bit more mm -hmm. to knock out um, a few, a few like decide between two different projects. And so um, I'm, having, I'm having trouble doing that. And, um, and I'm trying to, uh, uh, figure that out because even when I've limited it to just my community and even when I've limited it to the institution of the Democratic Party, you know, there's still um, 
there's still more choice within that to be had. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having trouble, but in so asking, uh, I'm, 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 I'm hoping for discernment on that, but um, a more practical thing I will give an answer to uh, <laughs> on that is a good path towards ha- giving yourself the space to discernment is, um, is getting rid of, of the, uh, the recently created feeds that are out there to the deep buzzes and status updates that are out there to distract you. So I, I proudly this week deleted Twitter and Facebook um, from my phone, and I hope to keep it that way. So, um, that's, uh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to stop doing. Awesome. Well, we'll be rooting for you for discernment as well. Um, and then that's inspiration because I've tried to delete <laughs> apps off of my phone many times, and then somehow they make it back. Um, so it's good to know that there are a bunch of us. Yeah, I'm at risk risk of the re-download of shame. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Thank you so much for this conversation. And thanks for all you do uh, with your organization and helping, um, helping people focus on um, what matters and and do work in a way that's life affirming and spirit affirming. Oh, thanks, Pete. Um, Thanks for your time. And we'll keep an eye out for your book. Yep. All right. Thanks, Pete. Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye. All right, folks. That was our very first episode, and I learned a ton talking to Pete, um, and I hope that you did too. What's sticking out to me most is that there are three ways of being, production, collaboration, and leisure, and I'm just trying to think of when was the last time that I had one of those just by itself without the spillover of the others. So I'd love to hear that from you. I'd love to hear when was the last time you were able to just be in flow. And I'd also love to hear if there are things that you need to stop doing and you need to figure out how to stop doing them. I'd love to do a podcast episode on that. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 